Welcome to the Maine Science Podcast. I'm Kate Dickerson. Today's episode is a conversation I had with Jesse Mullen, who is an associate professor of marine biology in the Corning School of Ocean Studies at Maine Maritime Academy. Jesse is an intertidal ecologist who studies marine macroalgae, what most of us know as seaweed. To say that Jesse is enthusiastic about algae is an understatement, and I became a huge fan as well after talking with her. Jesse has her own podcast all about algae called The Phycoverse. Jesse is a longtime friend of the Maine Science Festival and presented at the very first Maine Science Festival in 2015. I've included links to Jesse's Maine Maritime Academy webpage and her podcast in the show notes. One quick programming note this is the last podcast episode for the Maine Science Podcast in 2020. We'll be back with new episodes exploring Maine science and the people who do it on January 7th, 2021. Welcome to the Maine Science Podcast. Um, Thank you. You are at Maine Maritime Academy, which I find, I mean, most people don't realize that Maine Maritime Academy isn't just for folks who are going out to sea and, and doing ship work, right? I mean, that's what most people think about it. So um, I thought maybe you could tell us a little bit about why this cool algae person is at Maine Maritime Academy, and then we'll, we'll dive back further into your world. Sure. So um, yes, I am at Maine Maritime Academy in the really beautiful coastal town of Castine, Maine. And historically, Maine Maritime Academy um, was established for deck and engine and kind of being able to um, train naval officers and merchant mariners. But in 1990, um, they established the Corning School of Ocean Studies. And so we are celebrating our 30th year of having ocean studies programs. So it includes marine biology, oceanography, and a new major called coastal and marine environmental sciences. And so um, when I finished up my PhD from the University of Maine, they were looking for someone to teach a marine botany course and a genetics course. And so I just happened to land the position 14 years ago. And it's the most amazing place to be able to study algae and teach and have a group of incredible faculty and students who come here to learn about the ocean. So maybe we can go back a little bit. I was reading a little bit about you and, and my favorite part of your bio is, I love all things algae. I think that's a fascinating thing to put right out there. I, I think I want to know why. Like, how did you get there? Sure. And I don't. And I don't. I don't mean that badly. Like, it's just. It's not one of the common ones that you usually see people proclaim. So, yeah. if you exactly. could give us just a little bit of background, you said you went to the University of Maine for your PhD. So maybe, David, tell us how you found algae as your as your sure. thing. Sure. And, and unabashedly, I say I love all things algae because I do think that among kind of. Within the, within the world, algae has such a um, complex connotation, um, often not, not positive, maybe more towards the neutral to negative. <laughs> so, um, so how I became an algal lover, it was early. Um, I, was, I was a teenager um, and I grew up in the suburbs of New York City and I was looking for something to do for the summer. Um, and there was a two week program um, called Acadia Institute of Oceanography, which is based in Seal Harbor, Maine. And it, they had an advertisement in a magazine that I saw. And I said to my mom at the time, I, I would like to go here. And she thought, okay, you know, Maine's a great place to take a little respite in the summer. And so I spent two weeks 
um, doing one of their basic programs. And the thing that I loved the most, I mean, there's a diversity of students who go there and it's sort of a survey of all different things about the marine environment. And the activity I loved the most was keying out the seaweed. What does that mean, keying out the seaweeds? Yeah, so keying out, so there were probably 15 different seaweeds that uh, the instructors had collected and we used dichotomous keys or like choose your own adventure of is this brown or is this red? Um, and you could say, oh, it looks red. So you go to the step two that's for red and it, in red it would say, is it um, blade-like or is it um, filamentous or kind of like uh, filament-like? And you kind of go by steps of two through this dichotomous key until you can key it out and understand what the identity is. And I think most of the students in that activity were not wowed by it, um, that most of the, the concepts or topics that drove students to, to go to AIO were sharks, marine mammals, sea turtles, maybe things about the physics of the ocean, but there was something about the algae and maybe maybe it was just me at that time and just gravitating towards things that were the underdog. Um, I just knew nothing about the seaweeds and the algae and I just latched onto it and wanted to know more. And then sort of that kernel just kept growing. Um, and the more I learned, the more I wanted to learn more, and it hasn't stopped since. I can't imagine that the person who wrote that advertisement in the magazine had any idea that it would have that kind of impact. Did they mention algae? No. In the magazine? Oh, even better. And then <laughs> I think I think something that might surprise a lot of people, it, it surprises me until I think about it, the idea that seaweed is classified as an algae is not intuitive. Um, no. So did you... Did you have that reaction or you were you just kind of a blank slate and it didn't matter? Right. I mean, I, I most people think of algae like maybe the green scum, for lack of a better word, on a pond or a pool. But it, it's so diverse. It is so diverse. Um, I definitely had a blank slate. And I think even my understanding and concept of what the algae are has evolved as I have learned from age 14 until now, what they are, because they are, so the term algae is, is a, <laughs> it's the best representation of how humans just want to categorize everything and have it fit nicely into a box. And the algae don't do that. Um, that they are this group of misfits that um, are really misfits. Um, and so in in thinking about trying to describe what the algae are, there is no one definition, no one group. And especially in trying to articulate what the algae are simply and elegantly, it just becomes this mishmash of confusion for people. Because when we are learning about kind of all things that are living, we want to group them into simple things like plants or animals, or um, you know, sometimes you can be like, okay, so it's not a plant, it's not an animal. Then we kind of go back to, you know, what we learned as children, which at, at when I was learning, it was five kingdoms. So it was like plants, animals, algae, 
no, sorry, plants, animals, fungi, um, protists, and bacteria. And even within thinking about algae there, the algae fit in terms of bacteria and cyanobacteria. They fit in some of the plants and then they fit into what I always call the protist, which is like the gar garbage kingdom. Like when nothing ever fits anywhere else, you stick it in as a protist. And so most of the, the algae um, historically kind of were grouped in this protist kingdom, which as we're learning more and more about genes and genomes and kind of the molecular side of the diversity of life on this planet, it makes it way more complicated than just kind of having a simple five kingdom. And so the, the sort of the most current tree of life, when you map it out, it's just this beautiful star-like pattern of like all, the, all these new groups and some of them just totally underrepresented in terms of our knowledge of what they are. We have the genes um, and we know they exist, but some of them are, are groups we don't even have names for yet. We just know that they exist. And if you try to map out what we call the algae on these new trees of life, they're scattered like, um, like a playing, playing the game of jacks. <laughs> uh, they're just everywhere in that things that we historically call the algae are really so far different from each other in so many ways. Um, and at the core level, at the molecular level, so, so divergent from each other, yet we for centuries tried to group them as just the algae. So that strikes me that there's so many opportunities, right? It's such a new field or such a new area of expertise. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about what you're doing and how on earth you picked it with all of those different opportunities. Like, it almost seems overwhelming to me. How do you pick one? Sure. Yeah. I don't even know if you pick one, but kind of, I fell into the brown algae. Um, and I would say I do love all of the algae. And there are definitely groups within the, what we call the algae. I know nothing about. So, I mean, I, my, my degree is in marine biology. Um, I call myself a phycologist, which is the group of people who study the algae or phycologists. But even so, that's just a huge group. Um, and so I've, I've narrowly focused on, on the macroalgae, so the, not the microscopic groups. Um, and within the macroalgae, the brown algae. Uh, and so their, their scientific grouping is called the photosynthetic stromenopiles. Yet totally new words that like, when you say it out loud, you have to kind of like digest that and be like, what does that mean? And within the photosynthetic stromenopiles, they include the, 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 the brown algae, so the, the phaophytes, but they also include things like the diatoms, which are these beautiful unicellular microscopic algae. And within the brown algae, my, my expertise lies just within one group um, that are called the fucoid algae. So they are the typical brown algae that you'd find on rocky intertidal shores in the North Atlantic. So if you go out on the coast of Maine and you are kind of walking down to, to low tide or to tide pools and you see kind of 
large strappy brown or olivey green seaweeds um, that are in the genus Fucus or Ascophyllum, those are the ones that have captivated me professionally for over 10 years. Are those the ones that have almost like the strand and then the little pod on them? Yeah, so they are, they're, they're, um, they have these, the, the, the body of um, an alga is called a thallus. So they often have these like really long strappy thalli and they have a number of the species have air bladders and the air bladders are often, um, often across the whole body of the, the alga. And then sometimes they have other inflated parts, um, which are the reproductive organs. So people have historically like gone and popped, popped lots of different things. And sometimes they can pop the air bladders, which allow for the the individual to kind of float and remain um, upright during high tide. And sometimes folks pop these really gooey organs that are just full of eggs or sperm or eggs and sperm. And it's a very different sensation. And most folks just don't know what they're popping. <laughs> well, they do now. It's even, I often have students who, um, you know, a pastime has been to pop those. Um, and it is, it's, it's just full of mucilage and, and kind of really important parts of that individual. And people have smeared it all over their faces because it's, it's a great kind of hydration to your face. And then I tell them you're smearing, you know, the next generation on your face. And it often has a a less than appealing effect. Why brown algae? I mean, I, I, you said you, you found yourself drawn to that. It's, it doesn't strike me as an obvious one. Maybe it's just my ignorance. I think for so many folks, they've never learned anything about any of the algae. So as soon as you learn about one, you might become captivated and then kind of hold on to it. And for me, within the fucoid algae, why I came to the University of Maine was to study the reproductive ecology and population genetics of, of one particular species, Fucus vesiculosis, which has these paired air bladders. And the more I learned and the more that I started to investigate parts of the reproductive ecology and population genetics, I just become more and more um, overwhelmed and impressed by these organisms. And so the principal investigator in the lab that I did my PhD is Dr. Susan Brawley. And she had been studying fucoid algae um, for, for decades. Um, and what her research group had learned was that these, these algae, so they're, you know, they're dominant on the rocky intertidal shore. Uh, they are reproductive, usually from September to December on the coast of Maine, and that they have really tight control from when they release their eggs and sperm. And so for lots of marine organisms, reproduction um, is external to the organism. So they release all of their, their gametes, those eggs and sperm, into the water column. And it was at a certain point thought that kind of ecologically there'd be a lot of dilution that like all of these eggs and sperm would have to get into the water column and then they'd have to find each other. And what her research and her, and her students were able to demonstrate over time was that 
it wasn't so um, diffuse that the organism itself, I mean, it doesn't have a brain, um, it's photosynthetic, was able to release eggs and sperm during slack high tide surrounding new and full moons at calm conditions and when it's sunny, which is incredible. Again, because it's just like, I never knew that growing up. No one ever kind of, for me, growing up outside of New York City, never really thought of kind of any kind of reproductive ecology or strategy, ecological strategy for reproduction. And what Susan and her students at the time were able to demonstrate was that they that these algae have really tight control of only releasing when it's sunny and calm. And how it does that is it can sense the amount of bicarbonate, which is the carbon in the water that's around. And when it's sunny, the alga will take up that bicarbonate as the carbon source for photosynthesis. And when it's calm enough during a period of time when there's enough photosynthesis, they use up all that bicarbonate around the phallus and that's the trigger. And then it has kind of synchronous, like all at the same time, all of the individuals in those sunny calm conditions will release their eggs and sperm and there'll be nearly 100% fertilization success. So every single egg that gets released gets fertilized and the eggs are negatively buoyant. So they're sinking down in the water column and the sperm are bright orange. They've got this carotenoid pigment eye spot and they're negatively phototactic. So they swim away from the light. So instead of thinking about having reproduction be in a really big volume of water, the eggs are sinking down, the, the sperm are swimming down, and they're really fertilizing on, on the surface of, the, uh, of the, the rocks. And so it's much easier to be able to have that fertilization success due to kind of the ecology and the behavior of those gametes. The evolution of that is just mind boggling. I know, right? And, <laughs> I mean, and, so, and it's, it's a photosynthetic organism that again has what most people would not think of as being very charismatic behaviors. But that to me is an absolutely incredible in terms of all of the different reproductive strategies the algae have employed because so many of them live in an aquatic environment. And so many of them are, for at least the seaweeds, they are not motile. I mean, they, they are adhered to the substrate in which they have found themselves and they can't move, <laughs> but they need to reproduce. So all of those aspects thrill me and, and make me in awe of the algae because there have been so many different strategies that have evolved over time. I feel like I'm cutting to the chase. So what do you do now? I have a number of different kind of research projects that are, that are kind of always, always happening. And I've kind of moved to another fucoid. So another species of brown algae called Ascophyllum nodosum. And it's it's the other one that would be kind of dominant on the rocky intertidal shores. And it's often much longer. It has lots of air bladders along the phallus. And I would say within the last 10-ish years, I've been really interested in this seaweed because um, it's a really good indicator species for climate change in that its reproductive ecology um, appears to be often timed with sea surface temperature 
Um, and so it was one of the indicator species that the Maine Signs of the Seasons, which is a uh, University of Maine and Maine Sea Grant project kind of looking at phenology or the timing of things. And most of the indicator species are terrestrial in nature, but astrophyllum is uh, a coastal species. We're kind of looking at sea surface temperature and then kind of the maturation and release of um, eggs and sperm or kind of what those reproductive organs look like for ascophyllum has been a, a research theme and an interest. And so the Science of the Seasons is a citizen science-based program. And so it's a great way for folks to kind of get into the intertidal zone and become acquainted with ascophyllum and learn about it and collect data all across the coast of Maine so that uh, myself and colleagues can kind of get a sense of how shifts in reproductive timing might be occurring with shifts and changes in sea surface temperature. Is there a shift in how successful it is as well, or is it just timing? At the moment, it's just timing. But one of the things about timing and kind of unanswered questions in the, in the rocky intertidal environment is what other organisms might be wanting to consume or rely on the surplus reproductive material that's released. There is a lot of fucus and there is a lot of ascophyllum in the rocky intertidal zone. And if you think about like all of that reproductive material, it's eggs and sperm and there's a lot of mucilage that gets released, but it's also super nutritious. I mean, there's lots of carbon and lots of nitrogen that, that is in those gametes and other types of phytochemicals and other things. And so one of the things about the timing of reproduction and the shifts in reproduction might be that if organisms rely on that as a source of nutrition um, and there's a shift in that timing of release, those organisms that rely on it might not be shifting at the same time. We see that a lot in terrestrial literature and kind of terrestrial systems of what are called phenological mismatches. So when plants um, or flowers are, are blooming and, and whether or not those pollinators are there. And if the timing is off, you get these phenological mismatches that could have really large ecological consequences. And so that's, that's one kind of uh, long-term research theme is trying to see whether or not there are these phenological mismatches with organisms that are relying on fucoid reproductive subsidies or kind of these um, releases of eggs and sperm and reproductive surplus material. And I'll, I'll pop in really quickly to note that the Gulf of Maine is warming faster than just about anywhere else on earth. You know, yeah. there's, and that's why I was asking about the success, but also why the surface temperature issue is such a big deal. Yeah how that change in sea surface temperature, it's not sort of a blanket across the state of Maine. And so I think that's the other thing to kind of keep in mind. And I always keep in mind and thinking about kind of these really dynamic groups of organisms that inhabit the intertidal zone. And that, you know, it's not just sort of like a blanket that it's what, what's happening in Casco Bay might be very different than what's happening in Cobscook Bay, which might be very different what's happening in Penobscot Bay. So there could be all these patchwork responses because the populations might be different because the environmental conditions might be different. So kind of having these long-term and long range studies are really important to kind of see those responses that 
that that those those changes in temperature might have different effects in different geographic locations so that we can't have sort of a one size fits all or one study demonstrates everything for everything. And so, so that's one project. Um, and the other project um, is also on ASCA film and it's with colleagues that I, I now have at the University of Maine, which is looking at ASCA film, which is a harvested species. So it's, it's a species that has been harvested in the North Atlantic for centuries and in Maine for, for over four decades. And people harvest ascophyllum for all different reasons. Uh, some people harvest ascophyllum uh, as kind of a raw product that they put on their garden beds. It's a really great fertilizer. It's got lots of trace minerals and nutrients. Some people harvest ascophyllum um, and they extract out different chemicals from it and use them for a number of different agricultural products. Some people harvest ascophyllum and process it into other different types of agricultural or, or livestock products. So there's lots of different kind of economic enterprises from ascophyllum harvest. And one of the things that this group at the University of Maine, it's, we call ourselves CRACH, um, Conserving Rockweed Animal Systems for Sustainable Harvest, is to really look at the whole ecosystem um, and how it might be responding to harvest. And so it's working uh, with a number of different stakeholders and, and a really wonderful diversity of stakeholder groups um, and having kind of a, a long, longer term, really large geographic scale experiment looking at the environmental conditions. So light levels, temperature, wave exposure, response to harvested versus unharvested ascophyllum beds, the um, invertebrate community response. So what, what the invertebrates look like um, in harvested and unharvested sites, and then what the bird communities look like for harvested versus unharvested sites. And oftentimes all of those different kind of community dynamics are um, hard to achieve in one, one group. And the crash team is really great to work with because we've got ornithologists, we've got food web ecologists, and we've got psychologists who are all working together to try to get to an understanding of, of what those responses are when you harvest versus not harvest and, and kind of those, those long-term changes. So there was a number of sites that were harvested at the scale of what a commercial harvest would look like. And then going back uh, a year and then multiple years after to kind of see what those what those long-term effects might be or if there are long-term effects. I love the interdisciplinary nature of that. I think um, a lot of scientists that I talk to really strive for that, but it can be difficult kind of depending on the field. So the fact that you've you've got this group where it sounds like you've done it from the beginning or at least for this project to really kind of hit all of these different pieces, I think is really interesting. It's so great. I must say that it's, it's really awesome to work with colleagues that are outside of one's chosen discipline. And so Brian Olson, who's the ornithologist, and Amanda Klemmer, who's the food web ecologist, and then Hannah Weber, who's at Scudic Institute, who's sort of, she knows so much about everything. You know, just, and, and the students that we have um, on that project too, it's just so awesome to have meetings together and kind of have 
have just a diversity of backgrounds and interests and perspectives that like I wish I wish there was more science that that w- was interdisciplinary in that way. The partnerships and the sessions that I have that involve the largest, most diverse group are always the most fascinating. And the ones where I learn the most. I mean, you know, if you want to just take it from the selfish point of view, that's <laughs> that's where I learn everything. No, selfishly for me too. I mean, I, I have a really hard time identifying birds in the field. Um, and it, it's so great to go out with someone who knows birds and you know, I'm focused on the seaweeds and I can, you know, look at all these different types of seaweeds and they know nothing about the seaweeds, but they know everything about the birds. And just to like lift your head up and look at a different horizon um, on the shore and pay attention to other things is just fascinating. This is an, a good segue into the other part of your professional career that I'm fascinated by. And, and something that we've tried to do a lot with the Science Festival is to remember and include as much as possible the humanities and the arts. Mm-hmm. And, and I know that you are really interested in, in the art-science collaboration. So yes, I mean, I would say that's a, a whole nother part of my identity that I feel like if I didn't have, if I didn't have art and kind of this art-science in my life, I would not be fulfilled. (laughs) Um, And so how I came to really understand the importance of art and science collaboration happened when I was a PhD student. So I'll go back to that as the starting point. And I had, I I used an unusual technique when I was a graduate student where I was trying to figure out how far storm detached rafting fucus could go. Um, and so I didn't tag the fucus, but I, what I did was I labeled uh, oranges, like citrus fruit. Um, and I labeled them and I had numbers and letters and a little message in the bottle. And I, I released in over two years, like 1700 oranges. <laughs> um, and they were remarkable. Uh, as being really good proxies for storm-detached rafting seaweed, but also um, unique enough to kind of get written up. And in the end, it was the Down East magazine that kind of had a little article. And I got an email out of nowhere from an artist who um, grew up in Maine, but who was living in Spain at the time. Um, And she said, I'd love to collaborate. This, This concept of of oranges floating with, is just amazing to me and being kind of found. And I'm, I'm trying to um, develop a found poetry project. Do you think we could work together to kind of have art and science together? I hadn't thought of that and thought that would be really cool. Um, and so the second year when I was deploying the oranges, we would put words on the oranges and they would kind of through space and through time create all of these poems. Um, And it was so amazing just to kind of go through that process of seeing that there were all these other dimensions where science can take you and that could captivate a whole other sector of society who might be drawn to found poetry and not to rockweed reproductive ecology. And so that sort of started kind of this this real need, pursuit, passion for art science. And that I think artists are some of the most um, observational 
people I've ever met, that they really have such a deep understanding of, of, of tuning in to, um, to items or details that I think in, in my own scientific kind of professional grooming, I never was able to nurture in a way. And a perspective that's really different and refreshing and important. And so I think for me, art allows for there to be different visualizations um, and different communications, often about the same themes. Um, so in terms of thinking about changes over time or looking at really complex patterns, artists are able to unlock those visualizations or enhance them in a way that scientists can't. <laughs> um, and so that, that interaction and that collaboration, I think is really important. And I have a, a standing collaboration with a, a visual artist, her name is Celeste Roberge. And she um, is a professor emeritus um, from the University of Florida in Gainesville, but she is a Mainer and she um, grew up in Biddeford and she has a studio in South Portland. And she contacted me, oof, maybe close to 10 years ago, wanting to ID seaweeds. She had been kind of beachcombing for a long time and she just wanted to know what seaweeds she was looking at. And so I, I met with her and we, we clicked. We just really liked talking together. She was really intrigued of understanding what the seaweeds were. And she was doing amazing things with seaweeds of kind of constructing. She would, she would find a lot of beach cast. Um, there is a type of seaweed called agarum clathratum. Its common name is shotgun kelp or sea colander. And it's a kelp that has all these holes in it. I mean, so it really looks like someone blew bullets through it. And she would cast them as boats, um, either kind of the, the seaweed itself was kind of, she kind of dried it in a form that looked like a boat. And then she started playing around with casting in bronze um, and enameling some that were just amazing. Like if Thumbelina went to the seashore and she was gonna like, you know, take her flotilla out, they would be these, you know, boats made of agarum. Um, and so, I just sort of hung out with Celeste and, and learned a lot from her. And at, at some point, I think we were kind of just really interested in collaborating together. And so we've sort of always pursued that. And at the same time, there's been a couple of times where, you know, she's had a show. She often uses seaweed as, as her medium. Um, and there was a show maybe two years ago where, you know, there was a gallery in Portland and she was showing her her work. Um, and then they asked me to kind of speak and kind of go around. And everyone who came was, you know, in love with Celeste's art. And I came along and was kind of giving the science behind all of the seeds that she had chosen. And it was really fun because everyone in the room knew really not very much about seaweeds, but they could appreciate it so much more because Celeste made it gorgeous and aesthetically accessible to them. So then I could kind of pepper in the, the science and kind of learn more about having them learn a little bit more about the seaweeds on the side. I don't think it's possible for me to really express how cool that is. I mean, it's, it's being able to reach people at their place 
and then get have them understand science in a way that is not intimidating is it's like the holy grail. So do you plan on continuing the art science collaboration? I would love to. And I think every every time I talk to Celeste or I'm able to work with her, it's a gift. Um, and I feel like it would be so amazing and so amazing for other other scientists to also get that opportunity to interact with an artist. Um, and I think it's really hard. I mean, I, again, Celeste and I have had years to work with each other um, and get to know each other. And I think oftentimes there is not that time for artists and scientists to have that time to get to know each other because oftentimes it's different perspectives or it's even actually just a different timing of like timing of science sometimes is really different than timing in art. The vocabulary is totally different. So I, I hope that in my lifetime, there'll be other artists that I am able to collaborate with. And through Celeste, there have been other artists and different scientists that I've been able to collaborate with. And it's been really fulfilling and amazing. So you're working on two really different projects right now, long-term, which I, I find fascinating. I mean, I think um, it sounds to me the farmed seaweed is, is right along the lines of what Maine is trying to do with aquaculture. So I would imagine that there's some real, real practical applications there. But also your other project, you know, is, is more basic knowledge is what I would, I would consider it equally important. So I'm not going to ask you to pick which one you like more. If you could touch on what you, will you continue expanding on those two projects for the next couple of years? Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, I think, so I, I would make a distinction that Askafilm actually isn't, isn't cultured. Like it's not farmed, it's, it's wild harvested. Which is right, I'm sorry, but it, it's, uh, I would imagine there's some analogous uh, things that you would find out with that that could then be applied to aquaculture. But thank yeah. you. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point that it's it is very different in that way. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I think I I really like the I like both the ba- like the basic science I would call it like discovery science and the the applied parts. Like I think that um, I ha- I haven't done as much applied science and that really intrigues me because I think it's really important and I think that as as people become more engaged with science or more engaged with their local communities and what's happening in their their natural environments around them, kind of being involved in those applications and being involved with those stakeholders is becoming more and more important. And I see a, a real important need to be able to communicate science uh, and the importance of science and the application of what science can can do. So I think I think I'm always going to have one foot in both um, both the discovery and the um, kind of the applied side. And I probably can spend the rest of my life happily just looking at both Fucus and Askafilum with then doing kind of hopefully art science collaboration involving you know algae as inspiration. It could be beyond just just the fucoid algae. Do you ever have your students in your classes team up with a student artist and try to work on a project? Yeah, no, not, I 
we don't really have art majors at Maine Maritime. Academy. Well, yeah, I realized as I was asking, I was like, I am not, this is not a fair question by any stretch of the imagination. But I do have, I mean, over, I would say our ocean studies students, so many of them are very creative and do have art as a creative outlet. And so, yeah, I have them do, they don't really do art as much. We do more kind of labs that are applied. So actually they eat their way through most of the marine botany course by kind of consuming prepared different types of foods made from algae. And then we make products too. So we make, we have a spa lab where they make a number of bath and body products that use algae in it. And in both of those opportunities, I think the students can have some creative license in, in the aesthetic that they, they make. So they can kind of dabble in some of the art. And actually the first lab I teach for marine botany, the students do make cyanotypes, which are um, a very, um, it's an old photographic process that was kind of brought to the masses by um, a woman by the name of Anna Atkins. And she used the algae in the British Isles as her subject matter. And so I, the students make these cyanotypes and create beautiful pieces of art, um, which also help them know what the overall anatomy and morphology of the seaweeds are. So it's kind of sneaky in that they do, they do art and they learn the science as well. Jesse, it has been a joy to talk with you. I had no idea the extent of, of algae just in the main coastline alone. So, and to hear you talk about it with literally a smile on your face the entire time, I, it makes me want to learn more. I, I really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much. I'm always happy to gush about seaweed and algae anytime. The Maine Science Podcast has received support from the Maine Technology Institute and is recorded at Discovery Studios at the Maine Discovery Museum in Bangor, Maine. The Maine Science Podcast is produced and edited by me, Kate Dickerson. I received production support from Miranda Bouchard. The Discover Maine theme was composed and performed by Nick Parker.